Welcome to The Vent Room, where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we're with Ken Thigpen. He has been in leadership and respiratory care for a really long time, even though he's not doing that currently. I think that his years and expertise in management and working in leadership would be beneficial to some of our listeners. So, Ken, can you give me a little bit of your background as an RT? Because I know you've been doing this for quite a long time and kind of how you evolved. Sure. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share a little bit. Uh, I've been a respiratory therapist for 36 years. I've worked at every level within the department. I started as an OJT uh, at St. Dominic Hospital back in the uh, early 80s. And people left, but I'd, I had a purpose planted in my heart that I was going to come back and manage that department one day. Of course, when you're a long-haired college kid uh, who did all sorts of things that long-haired college kids did back then, people would just laugh and laugh. But uh, shortly after graduation, I uh, worked as a staff technologist at uh, University of South Alabama in Mobile. I also was moonlighting as an assistant director at a small hospital uh, just north of Mobile. Uh, while I was there, there was a company that saw some potential in me that was uh, maybe I hadn't seen in myself and offered me my first job as a department head in a 31-bed hospital in rural North Carolina. I jumped at the opportunity to be the man, and what was I thinking? I do not know, but uh, 30 years later as a department manager, uh, I, I felt like I had... Uh, had a lot of experience managing people. I saw a lot of opportunities to help people, to improve their working conditions, to improve conditions for my patients, and uh, hopefully uh, make a better life for them as as well as myself in the process. Uh, over the years, I, I had a critical care coordinator position, shift supervisor position, uh, just a little bit of everything. But uh, from... 1992 until December of 2016, I spent uh, right at 25 years at, at St. Dominic Hospital in Jackson. That's where I felt like I've been purposed to be and uh, took a department that where I started with 36 people in three sections to 143 people in nine different areas uh, of responsibility. I felt like we had the premier department in the state of Mississippi. Uh, I don't think you'd find too many people that would argue with that. And I say that not to brag, but I had an exceptional team. I, I love trying to identify the, the up and comers. I love to identify people who had experience and could bring lots of benefit to the, to the table and, uh, just create an exceptional work environment. We were incredibly stable. Uh, and I guess I probably need to shut up and get back to introducing myself like you told me to. I, Sorry about that. I tend to go off on rabbit trails. But after 30 years of managing people, I think I earned that right. Uh, I graduated from Heinz Community College, then went to the University of Mississippi, also known as Ole Miss, and graduated with my bachelor's degree in respiratory therapy. And uh, that's a, a educational degree that has served me well, I think prepared me well to uh, be successful in my profession and, and hopefully make a ripple here or there somewhere in the lake of life. How about that? 
That's great. I know that like what you were saying is that you had a, a great team. And as a leader, when you're putting out a job application, and I don't know about the area that you were in, you know, sometimes you might have 30 or 40 different people applying. And let's say there's a lot of new grads. What on a resume or in an application would kind of get it to your desk versus in in the trash? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, a, a lot of times, unfortunately, now one of the, the downfalls of that I think is a misfortune for a, a lot of department managers is with the evolution of complex human resource application systems where everything is done online. Uh, human resources has somewhat of a, or can sometimes have somewhat of a heavy hand in limiting the applications that you see. And I, I found myself fighting to uh, get full disclosure of whoever was applying. I, a lot of the things that I look for were uh, what do people do besides what they had done? If you're a new grad, chances are you may not have a lot of experience in hospitals, but if you'd had a previous job, what did you do? Were you in a service area? Were, uh, have you done any volunteer work to make a difference in the lives of other people? Uh, I always tried to uh, look for that diamond in the rough, and I'm not trying to imply what I believe on anyone else, but another thing that I, I did, and again, this is not intended to to offend anyone. I don't have a malicious bone in my body, but uh, I, I would pray that God would give me the wisdom to see the people that I needed to bring on to my team. Uh, that was a strategy that I think worked really well once I started using it. Uh, the first several years of my career, I didn't necessarily do that, and I made some foolish hires, uh, but once I... I quit trying to know everything on my own and also introduce team interviewing, uh, we made a lot better uh, selection of our employees. And you talked about team interviewing. So I know that a lot of departments do behavioral interviewing where you would not only just meet with one person, you might actually meet with four or five people of that team. What does the team interview or how does that affect your hiring process? To me, uh, the, the older I've gotten, the more I realize the value of having more than one set of eyes on any situation. Once uh, someone has completed interviewing with several different people, we would get together and, and it was ironic how often we would not only find and identify with a similar set of strengths, but the, the nuances that the other individuals would pick up on the red flags that they might share with somebody that they hadn't shared with with anyone else uh, could be very revealing. Uh, there is a lot of value in, in having those multiple sets of eyes. And uh, sometimes, you know, by the time you get through having that conversation with the team of interviewees or interviewers, rather, uh, you can actually get a lot better gut on, on which direction you need to go with a particular candidate. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You know, I've done uh, I've been on both sides of the team interviewing spectrum, being the interviewee and the, being the interviewer. And it's I, I agree, you know, different people pick up on different things. First, when students are completing their clinical rotations, I know as a professor in the past, you know, you're you're preaching that they're on a job interview. What are the things that you're looking for from a student that might be doing clinical rotations at your location? It's really simple. What do they do with their free time 
once they get done with the patients that they may be assigned to have gone with the therapist with, uh, are they coming back? Are they investing time in studying? Are they coming back and playing on their phone? Are they coming up and seeking opportunities to go out and see additional procedures? How eager are they to get plugged in and be a part? Are they going to seize the opportunity they have at working at what I consider to be the premier department in the state of Mississippi? Are they just going to squander it, uh, sitting around, goofing around, trying to figure out what they're going to do Saturday night? Uh, those are the, the biggest things. And, and the way they interact with my staff and with others, uh, do they take the opportunity to ask physicians questions during the rounding? Uh, there are so many opportunities that are there to be had for the taking. Uh, lots of tools in the toolbox that they'll pull them out and use. And how well they use them is is actually uh, where we get a lot of the information and, and decide who gets to play in our sandbox comes from. I totally understand that. You know, I think that that's one of those things that students don't realize that they're being watched all the time, even when they don't think they're being watched. Exactly. What's really ironic is... I don't think as managers we realize how they're interviewing us at the same time. Uh, you know, we had an incident several years ago that actually within the past two weeks, I actually uh, had brought to my attention that I had totally forgotten about. But we uh, had a, a student who was uh, eight months pregnant and she was doing a night shift clinical rotation. and being eight months pregnant and working night shift would be very difficult for just about anybody. And I, the student was found sleeping. And her clinical instructor from the school was going to kick her out of the program. And, you know, there are times where rules are rules, but there are times where you have to exhibit grace and mercy. So I say all that to say this was a student who I had seen on day shift and had seen how plugged in she could be and was someone who I planned to bring on to my staff when she graduated. And the clinical instructor is about to kick her out of the program because it's four or five o'clock in the morning. All of her work was done and, and she was simply exhausted. Uh, she had been having premature contractions to hold on yards, not to divulge too much personal information. But she had been through the ringer and was, in, I thought, in danger of probably going into premature labor. So I, to make a long story short, I wrote a letter on her behalf to the dean asking her not to expel her from the program and uh, exhibit a little grace and mercy because I felt like that's what we were called to do in healthcare. We're supposed to be compassionate. Uh, and sometimes it, I'm, I'm certainly not endorsing people going to sleep on the job, but look at the entire situation. Well, I had no idea the impact of that conversation until about two weeks ago where this particular therapist that got to stay in the program had recently been promoted to a coordinator position at a very large medical facility in my state. And I was meeting with her and she said, you know, I'll never forget what you did for me. And I said, what are you talking about? And she recanted that entire story I just shared. And to think that we could have short-circuited one of the most effective and productive clinical uh, coordinators in my state uh, by being short-sighted, I thought, uh, was pretty eye-opening. You know, sometimes, 
you just have to meet people where they are. Keep your eyes open and, and look for the value and remember that imperfect people aren't perfect. I think the key thing from there is that the student was active on day shift. So when you look at, you know, the Swiss cheese of it all and it you have, you know, being pregnant, being on night shift, being super tired, you know, that fell through that that Swiss cheese. But I think that yeah, you're right. When you're when when you have employees or or students that are always on top of things and they're they always do a good job, when they do make a mistake that, you know, isn't detrimental you you are able to say, you know what, let's learn from this mistake and move forward versus somebody who's always a problem. And it's just one more mistake on top of another mistake that is just coming and making it like shine brighter of, of air. You're spot on. I, I couldn't agree more. So when you're looking at these resumes and, you know, obviously some of the people have done clinical rotations and that clinical rotation is honestly what I think is the best interview. So if as a student, you're, you're interviewing the facility and looking to see it, do, what I do, does this team fit for me? Because really, you know, unfortunately, we have like two sides of a coin. One, when it's that time for graduation, everybody's looking for jobs. Um, and some people are just, they, they need a job. And then, so you, you might end up in a situation where the, the organization isn't the best fit and then there's opportunities, hopefully, that you end up with the right organization for, for both people. But with that, when you're looking at, um, you know, apples to apples, I think usually what I say to my new grads, I'm like, you guys have the easiest one. The answer for the weaknesses on your interview question, your interview question, you're new, <laughs> you know, when you've been doing this for, for 5, 10, 15 years. And, you know, I hate that question because... You know, you reflection is always difficult and trying to be like, okay, so what what am I weak on now? Because what I'm weak on now is different than it was 10, 15 years ago. But what are what are some of those things that make the students stand out? I mean, I don't know much about the the Mississippi market, if there is a bachelor's program or everything is associates degrees. Does the degree make a difference? Because I know that online and when you're looking at social media, there's always every so often there's the conversation of why even bother get the bachelor's degree. And I think, you know, I think it is a necessity. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want to invest that time and financing into it. Right. Unfortunately, uh, the program I graduated from mm-hmm. University of Mississippi was discontinued in the early 90s. Uh, so Mississippi no longer has a bachelor's degree in respiratory therapy uh, within the state. So most a majority of your graduates are associate degree. So that's you know that's a pretty level playing field for the most part. Uh, the impact of the degree would vary based on the position I was hiring for. If I was looking at replacing a leader, uh, if someone comes along and has that bachelor's degree. Uh, I would dig deeper into finding out are are they a mile wide and an inch deep, or do they have some some depth to their degree beyond uh, what I could get out of a, a local grad. Uh, I also that uh, that answer is probably different for me compared to a lot of leaders that I've run across out there. Uh, a lot of people put uh, a lot of credence into degrees, and I'm certainly never going to be critical of, of that. But at the same time, 
I would rather have an associate degree person who was hungry and passionate and humble that would I, I could train and mold into what I needed them to be versus someone who came in with the idea that they already knew everything and they were exactly what I needed. I don't know if that makes much sense or not, but I, 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 to me, I, I hired for heart more so than raw talent. Uh, I, I like to look for the potential in people. Two candidates who were applying for a job and the one on, the, on paper looked to be far more qualified, but in reality, between the interview, between the clinical rotation or whatever, just didn't cut the mustard as well as somebody who might not be as good at putting fluff on the resume. Uh, I try to identify what's real, what's authentic, and what they can actually bring to the table uh, versus fluff. And when you're looking at trying to, you know, get rid of the fluff per se, what are some questions that, you know, a person who's being interviewed could expect to kind of figure out whether they're the right fit for the team that you're you're hiring for? Uh, a, a lot of times they're they're very simple background questions. Uh, why did you become a respiratory therapist? What's your story? Uh, is it because a recruiter came and said this is a field that's picked as one of the top 10 uh, professions over the next 20 years? Or did you have some life experience that really drove you to wanting to become a respiratory therapist? That, are you wanting to do it because it was a two-year degree and you could get out and make a good salary? Or are you doing it because your mom or your grandparents struggle with COPD, you saw the struggles that they made and you wanted to make a difference in the lives of patients who had similar situations. And how comfortable people are in telling that story is, is very telling to me. And, how, you know, how authentic are they? Are they going to be willing to, to get real? I, I'm a very straightforward person. I'm a very simple person. And, uh, you know, I... I have, I think, a reasonably high level of emotional intelligence where I can, you know, don't TT on my head and tell me it's raining kind of person. Uh, sorry if that offended anybody. But, I, it, you know, I, I, I think about my personal story. You know, I became a respiratory therapist because I, one of my best friends got burned severely in a car wreck. And I saw how critical the role was of the respiratory therapist and the physical therapist was in, in his recovery. And I was like, you know, I, I want to do that. I want to be the person that, that comes in, administers therapy, and helps people feel better. And it, it's something that served me well ever since. And if somebody's got a compelling story like that, and they've done reasonably well in school, I would rather have someone that, that has that kind of heart, uh, even if they're a C student, than a Dean's List student with a BS degree. That doesn't have that kind of background. I know for me, there's very few people that, you know, grew up wanting to be a respiratory therapist. So it's, it's always interesting. I think that's one of my favorite questions is kind of like, how did you, how do you land in your profession or in this profession? Because, you know, I, only people I know that grew up wanting to be respiratory therapist had respiratory therapist parents. <laughs> that, that, I, I agree. I, I think another good question, another good question is uh, trying to, to delve into where people may have made mistakes. Uh, 
what's the worst mistake you ever made uh, in life in general or as a student or as a practicing therapist? Uh, and then delve into what were the consequences? What was the outcome? Uh, you know, that that's right there with that perceived weakness question that, you know, but what's your biggest weakness besides being new? Uh, you need to be honest with those. Those are, are good opportunities to deliver the message. Hey, I'm real. I'm, I'm going to let you know I'm vulnerable. Uh, you're going to get the best of me. I'm, I'm going to shoot straight with you and I expect you to shoot straight with me. And when you can establish that kind of rapport on the front end, uh, I think you're off to a really good first step. And I think that people sometimes have to actually re like really reflect to understand what their weaknesses are, because I know uh, historically, if you look at some of the literature, the different things is like, take a strength and make it, you know, take your weakness and make it look like a strength. Like somebody saying that their, their weakness is being too detailed. You know, that's, that's really not a weakness. When you can uh, actually present it in, in that mindset that you're ahead of the game. For that interviewing aspect, you know, surprisingly enough, you know, you think you don't think that you really need to go over the way people should come dressed for an interview. Um, but I guess in your many years of management, what were some of the fashion pause of those who came <laughs> to be interviewed by you? Uh, I'll be honest, when someone showed up to an interview in blue jeans, uh, unless they had a really, really good reason, uh, that just to me showed uh, disregard and disrespect uh, for my institution as well as what they were doing. Uh, I, I felt they discounted themselves from the get-go. If someone came in in scrubs, if they were coming from another job or from a clinical rotation, I I can live with that. I accept that. I I totally get that. But uh, if someone doesn't care enough to try to make a first impression, a good first impression, uh, you know, that tells me that, you know, they may not pay the attention they need to to detail and charting. It tells me they may not care that much about how they present themselves to our patients. And it's just uh, not a good message to send. Folks, take the time to try to impress. I'm not saying come in in a tux or a suit but at least uh, clean, pressed clothes, uh, dress professionally, uh, dress for success. Uh, you don't have to be confident to look confident. I know for me, I remember one time I was actually had some students on a clinical rotation as their clinical instructor, and we were reviewing dress because they were getting towards the end. And we actually, you know, it's like, in a dress appropriately and and the next person that actually came in for the interview for the most part was dressed nice but the high heels were that of the nightclub and they were bright blue and she had a white shirt with like a very dark bra under and it was like a perfect example of you know saying hey this isn't what you what you wear especially when you're about to walk around a facility because hopefully if you're doing a, a good interview you'll get a nice tour and she she just had difficulty walking and we had to go get like um the OR scrub booties to go over her feet so that she could actually walk around and do her, do the tour of the hospital wow and you know you, 
if I were an incoming student, I'd, I would listen very carefully to these kind of suggestions because uh, they're, they're invaluable. Uh, you really want to make that right first impression and remember that before you go in. So for a new grad that would join your team, what was their orientation like? Like, I, I think, and that's very dependent on the region and the hospital. And having practiced a little bit of everywhere, I can I can say that there is like a little bit of an East Coast and West Coast medicine. Um, but what's that typical orientation like for at least the facility you were at? Well, the, the thing about it is uh, our orientations were tailored based on the experience and background of the incoming candidate. Uh, if you've had a therapist that has worked in the area or had previously worked at the hospital, it was more compressed and abbreviated uh, for uh, a new grad who may not be from the area or had only done limited clinical rotations in your hospital. They spend a lot of time with our, our clinical coordinators. It was typically about three weeks uh, uh, review of, of common policies and procedures, uh, spend some time uh, with staff in the unit, spend some time with staff members on the floor, spend some time with our coordinators, understanding what our metrics we were looking at were, uh, how what they did on a daily basis impacted those, uh, getting clinical competencies checked off, etc. So it, it could typically vary from as little as probably about a week and a half for that experienced therapist who had been there before to a couple of weeks for someone who'd been around the block a few times to uh, three and sometimes as, as many as four or five weeks for someone who might be new and may not be quite where they needed to be. The biggest emphasis we had was on trying to make sure before therapists were free to move about the country was that they understood the impact of uh, quality and safety and everything we did and how we did. Some it. folks just took a little bit longer to get there and, and for us to develop that level of comfort than others. Well, and I think that just in schools, right, even whether it's a bachelor's degree or uh, if it's an associate's degree, I remember growing, when I was a student, my one of my favorite teachers was always like, we're putting a 20-pound turkey in a 10-pound bag. and and with that, um, you know, you don't get to always learn everything about safety, you know, especially when you're just trying to get the, the basics of mechanical ventilation. So it's that employer's responsibility to kind of fill in the gaps when they do get hired on. Right. And one of the things we did as well uh, that helped new grads and to me really uh, helped our existing staff as well as we would have daily stand-up meetings. We called them our huddles, uh, where we would talk about what was happening in the department. We'd discuss problem patients. We'd discuss uh, what needs of any of our staff members were. And it, it kind of helped keep everyone on the same page as well as uh, help develop that, that sense of teamwork uh, that where we could identify issues that they might be running into and it, I think it helped our our new employees develop a level of comfort with where they were and what they were up against uh, while they were learning on the job. Now, I know what for me when I'm I'm working with students, I always say, you know, you you need to research the facility, always prepared, 
uh, and have some questions available for that end of the interview when it's they pass the baton to you. What are some good questions that you would think a new grad could be interviewing the facility itself? Because you know, you're it's kind of like a a first date that leads to marriage. Right, and, and, and that's a great approach uh, and, and a great snapshot for looking, a great lens for looking at this experience through. Uh, as I, to me, as, if, as a, a new grad, uh, ask that one of the things that your hospital in particular, your department does really well, where do you shine? Uh, and at the same time, uh, what are some possible gaps? If you could improve anything about your department, what would it be? Uh, to me, that that gets pretty deep pretty quickly. And if, if someone is really interested in that, and as a director, if you're going to ask those kind of questions, I'm going to be watching how you respond to what I'm giving you. Are you taking any notes? Are you just getting in the bobblehead mode and nodding your head in all the right places? Or uh, are, are you really trying to process what I'm telling you? It's just a, a good opportunity for both sides. If someone wants to come at me with both barrels, please come on. But uh, just just know I'm, I'm gathering my ammunition while you're, you're shooting fire at me. Don't know if that makes sense or not. It does. And what are some questions that really no one should ask on the interview? I'll be honest. If someone comes in and asks about pay, uh, especially early in the interview, or, or benefits that they make, what what's in it for them a priority? That's a, a huge turnoff for me. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the information uh, toward the end of the interview if we get that far. Uh, to be honest, I'm a person that likes to consider myself reasonably efficient. And oftentimes have a pretty good idea if someone could be a good fit or not. If someone's not going to be a good fit and I, I know I don't see hope for them, I'm not going to waste my time talking about benefits and pay ranges. On the other hand, I, I, they need to have a, a high enough level of trust in me as their manager to know that I'll tell them what they need to know and I'll give them the opportunity to ask questions. But to me, asking about salary and benefits and all those early in an interview is like trying to get get to second base with me on a, using a dating analogy uh, without ever even holding my hand and telling me hello. I mean, to me, that's like somebody driving up to my house and honking a horn for me to come out instead of coming to the door and walking me to the car. And I'm a guy, that's my role. Uh, not trying to sound sexist or anything else, uh, but that's just uh, going back to your analogy. I, that's, that's the way I look at those things. There's a time and a place uh, to me, uh, trying to identify how you fit, uh, how you could help the organization. Uh, those are things that are much more important than the what's in it for me. Uh, I've said oftentimes before that today's society seems to be tuned in to WIIFM 97.3, uh, what's in it for me. And, uh, you know, we're in healthcare. We're supposed to be there to help take care of people. Let's keep it about that. I think also as, as leaders, you know, you might know the pay range, but you, you don't know what that person's going to get paid because that's all like HR and compensation and they have their little calculators and little charts that, that get them there. So also the other question, I, you know, I've seen this p posted on social media a couple times and 
I know for me as a new grad, I didn't feel like, you know, you, you got your job offer and, and it was either you, you took it at face value or you didn't. Um, do you think new grads have any leg on being able to negotiate their, their wage? Cause chances are, you know, they're going to go to night shift. It's the way, it, it's the way of the world. Sure. To be honest, uh, unless they've got specialty credentials or something, uh, to me, new grads are, are essentially going to get what the new grad pay rate is. Uh, most of them don't have a lot of negotiating room. If they may have been previously credentialed as something else, whether it was a paramedic or uh, an LPN or an RN, uh, that could play into it and, and possibly have an impact on what they're getting paid. But if, if they're a new grad or RT, most new grad pay for RRTs is what it is. Uh, and I would be weary of uh, sending the wrong message to your potential employer by asking for more than what they're, they're offering uh, fresh out of school. The, the other thing that I kind of press on students or, or people applying for jobs, and I don't know if it's gone to the wayside but I know I still continue to do it is at least nowadays, you know, it's not a thank you note, but it's a thank you email. Does that make somebody stand out? How often do you get those as a leader from somebody you interviewed? Uh, not very often, but I know when I would receive them, it would make me smile. Uh, at once in a blue moon, I, uh, you know, I, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say it happened less than 25% of the time. I think that's a safe number. I always know that whenever I interviewed for a job, I always send a, a follow-up. I'm still a big believer in handwritten notes. And I know that's old-fashioned on my part, but uh, to me, a handwritten note still goes a long way. It would, to me, it, it would help their stock rise. Uh, it, it, it's a good practice to get into. And uh, take the time to say something real. Uh, take the time to be authentic with the uh, potential employer, uh, if there were highlights of what you saw, you saw something during the tour, uh, you met a particular employee that made an impression, uh, take the time to share that. Uh, a lot of times uh, people, especially uh, individuals who might be touring potential employees around on the floor, they don't get a lot of props. And I always try to find opportunities to to give props to, to the people that were out there getting things done. And especially when it comes from someone outside and instead of me, I think it brings even more uh, relevance and value to that person that, hey, maybe there is some value to what I'm doing. And it, when I find people that like to prop up uh, some of my existing team members, that lets me know that's the kind of person I want on my staff. No, I totally understand that. So if you were going to give like top three, you know, Ken Thigpen's tips for entering the respiratory care profession, um, what would they be? Uh, number one, uh, never forget why we're here. Uh, as a respiratory therapist, I've always taken great pride in trying to make a difference in the lives of the people that I cared for. The people we provide care for are typically our friends, our neighbors, people that live in our community, and they deserve our best. Uh, to me, that, that's so important. 
uh, I guess to sum that up, I might phrase it as take care of every patient you're caring for as if they were your family member or yourself. Uh, if you don't get along with your in-laws, I wouldn't consider them family members in that mindset because you might want to go in and kill your mother-in-law. But uh, hopefully that's not the case for most of us. That was supposed to be funny, but nobody will probably laugh. And uh, number two, uh, give it your best every day. Uh, our patients deserve our best. If you've got problems going on outside the hospital, hang them on the door when you, you come on the job because uh, our patients don't deserve it. it you know, it, we don't need to go home and kick the dog. We don't need to come into the hospital and kick our patients. Number three, uh, always do your best to help your teammates. If you happen to get caught up and you see an opportunity to give someone else a hand, always try to do that uh, because chances are working in the hospital over 30 something years, I've, I've seen this every day. Uh, somebody has a bad day every, every day that you come to work and look for opportunities to help that person having a bad day and because one day it's sure enough going to be you. And hopefully, if you're a good teammate, that people will be just as willing to reach out and help you as you have been to help them. Uh, conversely, if you're someone who is a self-absorbed slug and you don't do anything to help your teammates, chances are when they see you drowning, they're going to be a lot more reluctant to step up and help. How about that? I think as a respiratory therapist, you know, we do work by ourselves quite often, but, you know, that teammate, that camaraderie, um, and being able to support each other when someone else is busy is always important. I know, you know, it basically, we, I try to go by if, if, if everybody's work, if, if there's one person working, let's all get, help them get that work done so that we can all sit together. Exactly. Nobody stops till everybody stops. That was our department mantra. So I also know like on social media, there's always this back and forth on what does the AARC do for me? And I know I've seen you lecture several times at AARC Congress. What do you think or what's your uh, opinion of being involved in the AARC or what does the AARC do to support our profession day to day? You know, when you ask about things that make a difference on an application, that was one important one that I, I glazed over, and I apologize for that, because to me, if someone is taking the commitment to become an AARC member while they're a student uh, versus one that doesn't, uh, that person's automatically going to have a leg up. Uh, being involved in our professional organization is one of the most critical things that we need to do. Uh, it, what's ironic to me is the people that complain the most about respiratory therapists not being professionals have never even bothered to join the AARC. Uh, a lot of them have never bothered to keep up their NBRC credential. Uh, they don't act like professionals, but they're going to be the first to whine when uh, about not being recognized as a professional. You know, the one of the keys to me for being recognized as a professional is to act like it. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of tolerance or a lot I guess I need to get back to the question and I don't mean to get off on the soapbox because I could do it so easily when it comes to that. Uh, being involved in the AARC to me is, is critical. Uh, I love what we do. I want it to be successful. I want people to recognize our profession and a small price to pay for that 
is being active in my professional organization. Uh, we have achieved a lot of things as a result of the efforts of the AARC. We have, uh, you know, it, it granted making a transition from an associate degree entry level to bachelor degree is full of challenges. It's uh, a road with potholes in it, but it's one uh, to help respond to these people that say we're not professionals that is necessary for us to take. It's going to be painful. It will have challenges, but at the end of the day, I believe will be a road that's worth it. Uh, but for the things that are happening in Washington, for the impact we've had uh, with our members that sit on national committees of other professional organizations, uh, we all have challenges with reimbursement in the hospital setting, especially as as well as home care. And, and the AARC sending representatives to work with CMS, the people who decide how much we're going to get, uh, how much hospitals will be reimbursed for, that people who are at the table and being a part of these critical conversations means a lot. And it doesn't mean we get everything we ask for, but at the same time, we have a chance to be heard. The current uh, legislation that's in, in front of Congress uh, as we speak for telehealth is huge. It's going to open several doors for us. If we didn't have the A or C, those conversations wouldn't be happening. You know, they are our voice. In Washington, they are our voice in healthcare reimbursement. They are our voice in healthcare regulations. Um, They're a, a guiding force for our profession, and it's critical that that we learn at a young age how important it is to be a part of that. I joined as a student before a lot of people who are are in school right now, if not most people who are in school right now, were ever born, and it's. Uh, you know, even after I retire, I, I anticipate being uh, a member of the AERC as long as I'm alive. That uh, it brings a lot of value to us. You know, we get the respiratory care journal. That that's a big, fat, hairy deal because we it's a peer-reviewed journal that is published internationally uh, that demonstrates what the latest and the greatest in the art and science of respiratory care is. We've got one of the most comprehensive professional journals out there. We get AARC Times uh, to give us little snippets of what's happening in real life at the bedside. Uh, those are all things that, that are important. The other thing that the stuff you can't put a price tag on for me personally are the relationships that you develop by participating in in AARC activities, our summer forum, our international congress, being active uh, at the state level and, and possibly the national level. Those are things that have all worked really well for me. You know, as a result of me being involved at the state level, I got to go into the AARC House of Delegates. And it's really neat having relationships with people from all 50 states and Puerto Rico it's uh, been an, such a great experience meeting international fellows. Uh, they're just there's a plethora of benefits to being a member, and you can do it for the amount of money it takes uh, to have a few cups of coffee. You know, it's I, I don't know the exact amount off the top of my head, but it 
you know, if, if you skip coffee for a month out of the year and you can do it a few days each month, it, 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 it doesn't cost a lot of money. The bang for the buck is huge uh, compared to what other healthcare professions charge for membership. Uh, there's a lot of value what the AERC provides to the respiratory care profession. I think you highlighted an, an important point, and I think I actually stole this uh, this line from you from one of your lectures that I saw, which is, if you're not on the table, you're on the menu. Exactly. I was just about to say that. that, that, that and the AARC keeps us at the table. See, I, I remember some things. But um, what's what's your what's your favorite thing about being a respiratory therapist? It's uh, this probably sounds really self-serving, but there is uh, one particular event that that will always stick with me, and it's something I, I I've referred to several times. I remember I'd probably been active in the field for five or six years, and there was this brittle asthmatic patient that came into our hospital and her heart rate was in the 150s, 160s. Her respiratory rate was in the upper 40s. She wasn't moving any air. Uh, I was giving her back-to-back treatments and I was, she was just literally scared nearly to death. Uh, the, the panic, the anxiety that was in her eyes, uh, I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, it's just seared into my brain. And I just stayed with her. And when I watched her break, there was a look of gratitude in her eyes. And I've seen it in other patients since and before, but it, it didn't resonate with me like this particular patient. The look of gratitude in her eyes when she started getting relief was priceless. And I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson that said, to have known that even one life breathed more successfully because of you, that is to have succeeded. Something like that. I probably butchered that. But it, that, to me, I, respiratory therapists, uh, to some degree, offer the breath of life. And it's a high privilege and an honor. And it's not one I take for granted. And to have had a role in knowing that people are alive, number one, that they're alive, period, but number two, having a higher quality of life because of what we do and how we do it is, is incredibly rewarding to me. Uh, my mom uh, had horrible COPD. Uh, she was never a smoker, uh, but she had her COPD primarily secondary to real bad osteoporosis with a kyphosis. Secondary to that as a result, uh, because her uh, spinal deformity was so severe, she had a 34% vital capacity. Uh, my mom arrested twice. Once we were able to get her back with BiPAP, the second time we had to intubate her. And it was just like a bullet hit me between the eyes. And it was like, Ken, you're a respiratory therapist, dude. Your mom cannot die of respiratory failure. And then she had so many other complex uh, issues going on. She had been either in hospital or rehab for part of all but five months 
uh, over a five-year period. So in in 60 months, you're either in hospital or rehab for, for 55 of those. Uh, the numbers may be a little bit off, but not much. Uh, that takes a toll on the patient. It takes a toll on the family. And when she reached that point where I said, I, this can't happen anymore, and I got real aggressive, and I got highly involved in her case with my pulmonologist and kind of took control of a lot of the aspects of it. Uh, we got her with a, a, a good OPEP device. We got her with a really good nebulizer. And believe it or not, uh, by the time we did those things that uh, I was able to help direct uh, the last two and a half years of her life after she had arrested she only had a single overnight hospitalization and she had not had a productive cough in, in, in two years. And we were able to get her where she could have that productive cough again, stay out of the hospital, stay away from those recurrent infections. And to, to know that we had that kind of impact and the impact it had for me personally, uh, that's huge. And the thing about it is that every one of us have opportunities to do that every day we walk into a hospital. You don't need to take that for granted. When we take that responsibility seriously, uh, remember why we're here, take care of that patient that's in the bed like they're our family member, we're going to make some huge differences in the lives of our patients out there. Well, Ken, thank you for sharing that story because that, you know, I think that those are the type of stories and, and those types of things that remind us that we are not just caring for you know, going to work to, to get a paycheck, but, you know, every day we are always caring for a, um, a person and it, it is easy to get compassion fatigue over, over the years of working in, in healthcare. I, I totally agree, but, uh, we, we got to find those opportunities, look for the opportunities we can to make a difference, seize them and uh, re remember to celebrate them sometimes. Well, thank you for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. And I think that this is going to be beneficial for the listeners. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Good luck, everybody.